welcome back, guys. Welcome back to Lighting Up the Marquee. Uh, hopefully everyone had a, you know, good weekend. It's it's springtime. It's uh, it's starting to warm up wherever you are. Uh, the weather's nice. It's nice and sunny here in L.A. Uh, and I'm stuck inside doing this podcast for you. <laughs> but uh, it was good. I've been outside all day, actually. I was uh, at my new job, actually, starting training the last couple weeks. So I've been outside. Uh, and it was nice. It's nice and nice... Nice day out in L.A., but uh, decided to do a discussion episode this week. Uh, something I had a couple ideas in mind. Uh, I was uh, debating on which one to do, but I think I found... I not think, I know which one I found, because I'm doing it right now, but uh, I'll save the other one for another, another time. I want to get a little bit more, uh, you know... Not facts, but more of my thoughts put together for it before I actually do a dedicated episode on it. Um, but this one I've been thinking about for a little bit, um, and I'm also I was also debating on doing a review today as well uh, for the new movie High Life, directed by Claire Denis and starring Robert Pattinson. Uh, but I think I'm going to throw that in to this weekend's review because um, I think I'm only going to see this weekend Hellboy and. Uh, Missing Link, I think is what it's called. Um, so yeah, I think I'll throw it in this weekend. Uh, I want to, I still want to think about it a little more. I saw it on Sunday, but, uh, it it was a lot to process. So that's all I'm going to say about that for now. But, uh, this week I've been thinking about a topic lately. Um, so I was thinking back actually on my time at Columbia College. Uh, and it was, I think... I think second semester of my junior year, yeah, yeah, second semester of my junior year, I took this class, and the class was called Cinema Analysis and Criticism. Now, this class isn't, it wasn't the best, um, but it definitely, it, it did help me as far as like looking at movies uh, thematically and looking at their themes more in depth and uh, coming up with an analysis, basically. Not so much as the criticism part, but like it helped me more focus on analyzing movies uh, and just thinking about them more. Uh, so we watched three movies in that class. It was The Limey uh, by Steven Sodenberg, uh, The Dark Knight and uh, by Christopher Nolan, and Unforgiven with, uh, by Clint Eastwood. But the thing about the class was like we dedicated the semester to those three movies um, and Unforgiven and The Dark Knight I've seen countless times, especially The Dark Knight. So it was kind of one of those things, especially in film school, everyone kind of dreads, you know, going to a class just to watch a movie. Um, it's basically like you're spending all this money just to sit in a class and watch a movie, which most people when I talk to them are just like, you, you're so lucky you went to film school. So you just watched movies all the time when it's like, yeah, that's good. But when it becomes like a like a chore or a requirement, it gets so uh, so much time. It's like so much time is eaten up from doing that where it's like it could uh, could have been used to like be on sets and actually make stuff where the movies we watched, I could probably, like I said, with The Dark Knight, just go home and watch it anytime, honestly. Um, but I was thinking about this topic or like not this topic, but this class a lot recently because... Uh, a couple weekends ago, uh, on March 23rd, it was the, what is it, the 109th birthday? Yeah, 109th birthday of the director Akira Kurosawa, 
who is one of my all-time favorite directors. He's a big influence and inspiration on me. Uh, I was going to do this episode actually then um, for his birthday, but uh, time got away from me. Other episodes got in the way with planning, yada, yada. But I'm doing it now. Uh, So I was thinking about him because of that and because of this class, because I actually kind of wanted to do this episode as not really a discussion, but more of like an analysis episode where uh, I wrote a paper in that class, and I think it's pretty fucking good, but, you know, that's because I wrote it, and I actually enjoyed writing it, but I was, when we were watching the movie Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood, we had to do a research paper. Um, I forgot, like, the whole, a lot of the criteria of the paper, but it was basically talk about the Western genre um, and, like, techniques uh, Eastwood used in uh, his movie Unforgiven, uh, and you can also go back to his past in like Spaghetti Westerns with Sergio Leone. But I was thinking about this paper a lot because I remember, I think I was like one of the only people, if not the only person, who a big chunk of my paper was honestly dedicated more to talking about uh, Akira Kurosawa and his impact on the Western genre and how really... When we think of uh, we think of the Western genre as this like super American like super American genre where it's like it, it's about the old West in America and it's about all these uh, good good old American cowboys. But I was thinking about it, and it's really the Western genre. So much of it's not even influenced from like America. Like yes, the the landscapes and everything are inspired by the American West and like the culture of the time, but. As far as filmmaking, there's a lot more of, like, European and, in uh, today's episode's case, Japanese influence from Akira Kurosawa. Um, So I was just, you know, I'm thinking about this paper, and I'll bring up some, you know, some some topics that I was thinking about. Um, But yeah, let's, let's, you know, let's jump into it. This might be a little bit of a, I don't know how long this episode will be, Um, I don't know how much there really is to talk about. I was just, you know, thinking about it, and I thought it would be a fun episode. But, you know, so we got the Western genre. Now, like I said, this is dated back to be, like, the most American genre in filmmaking. Um, All started back in... The genre can date back all the way to 1903, with the first film being The Great Train Robbery, which is, yeah, that's the the quintessential first uh, Western movie. Um, but it really didn't get, you know, didn't really rise to prominence really until maybe like the thirties, thirties and forties with like John Ford. And then in the fifties and sixties, for sure, with the spaghetti Westerns and the classical Westerns in a sense is what they're technically, uh, categorized at. But the Western genre, as far as films, it's probably... Honestly, it's probably similar to like a horror, like the horror genre, because there's so many subgenres to uh, just the category of Western. I'm even looking at a few right now. So we have like, we have the classical Western, comedy Western, contemporary Western, epic Western, horror Western, martial art Western, uh, revisionist Western, science fiction Western, spaghetti Western. There's just a, a lot of different subgenres to this. Uh, overarching umbrella of the Western. Um, And even 
we're going to talk about in particular, uh, I want to talk about the spaghetti westerns. Now, uh, fun fact for those who don't know where the term spaghetti western comes from, it actually means uh, film western films that weren't filmed in America, but were actually filmed in like Italy or Europe, but like were made by Italian filmmakers. So that's why it's called uh, spaghetti western. So there is already the uh, the Italian influence on this quote unquote American genre. So we have uh, filmmakers like Sergio Leone, who during the '60s is most known for the the it's called the Dollars trilogy or the Man with No Name trilogy that starred Clint Eastwood. So that includes uh, a fistful of dollars for a few dollars more and the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Um, the latter being. Uh, probably the most well-known of the three, and also probably one of the most well-known films of all time. Um, but then Sergio Leone also made, uh, I believe it's called Duck, You Sucker. Uh, and then he also made Once Upon a Time in the West. So those were his other uh, Western films after the trilogy. Uh, and then he went on to do Once Upon a Time in America in the 80s, and I think that was his last film. But... Um, while making the Dollars trilogy, Clint Eastwood's even gone on and said how, like, him working with uh, Leone during that time and all the other Westerns he was starring in uh, helped him to eventually want to direct his own Western film, um, which led to, uh, I think he directed a few before Unforgiven, but, like, a lot of his influence from working with uh, with Leone is definitely in Unforgiving, uh, in Unforgiving, excuse me, um... But even Leone has his influences. So he was not the one that, like, crafted the... He he did craft the Spaghetti Western and made, like, the Western what it is. But he took most, uh, most of his influence from uh, Akira Kurosawa. Now, um, many... I don't know how many of you would out there know Kurosawa's filmography. Um, but just know he's inspired directors like George Lucas, Spielberg... Uh, Leone, Coppola, uh, even so far as I'll mention about remakes too in this episode, uh, Star Wars is heavily inspired by Kurosawa's movie The Hidden Fortress, um, almost to the point where it's like pretty much the same beat points and same like plot elements in a sense. Um, and George Lucas has even said how that without Hidden Fortress, Star Wars wouldn't be. And even in some rights, Star Wars is considered like a uh, space western almost because it's not science fiction it's more like a space adventure um but many people would probably know um the movie the magnificent seven uh whether it's talking about the one from a few years ago with uh denzel washington or and chris pratt uh or the one from the 1960s uh those two films are actually remakes of kurosawa's film seven samurai from 1954 um so it just shows like the Western genre is like so much is influenced from all these uh, from not American culture. It's from like Japanese samurai culture and uh, just the Italian landscape, yada, yada. But uh, even Sergio Leone has gone on and said how his movie A Fistful of Dollars is essentially just a shot for shot remake of uh, Kurosawa's Yojimbo, which came out three years prior. Um, and even in my paper, I was looking up like a bunch of articles about, uh, how Kurosawa was a huge influence on the Western genre. And according to, uh, this article, the good, the bad, and the Japanese from James Bowman, 
he describes Kurosawa as being the central influence on the true American hero. Um, pretty much that who would succeed uh, that of like a John Wayne or a Gary Cooper. Um, and he, and what he means by that is the star of most of Kurosawa's films was an actor by the name of Toshira, Toshiro Mifune, I believe is how you pronounce his name. Um, but he gives off this portrayal of uh, a character who is morally compressed and only emerges as the hero only because of a single act of chivalry or idealism. Uh, that stands out prominently against the backdrop or the background, excuse me, of moral desolation that each inhabits. Um, and even that's straight from Bowman's article. Um, but he also says how like this character arc is seen in a lot of uh, revisionist Western films, uh, just to add layers to the characters of those films. Um, which is different from the Westerns of the 50s with like John Wayne and Cary Grant, which is like they have like these clean cut Western uh, cowboys, like definitely the hero were in the 60s with like the revisionist and spaghetti Westerns. They were like more rugged. Um, They didn't seem like they would be the good guy, but they ended up becoming it because of the circumstance they were put in. It's like Kurosawa and Mifune created the heroes that didn't look uh, heroic. They were supposed to be better or they were not supposed to be better than any other man apart from being quicker with a draw of the gun or effective with a samurai blade, basically. Um, samurai uh, samurai blade being in the Kurosawa films wearing the guns. It's the Leones and the Eastwoods. Um, and something else I noticed about, like, the, the Western genre, too, in relation to, like, Kurosawa's career is by the time, like, the 1970s rolled around, Westerns were, like, on the, the downslope of cinema uh it's kind of like they had it's like where else could you go with this genre like what else can you do to reinvent it that already hasn't been done uh i think it was even spielberg a few years ago who said he compared the superhero genres now to the westerns of the 50s and 60s where it's at this height right now but it'll soon like die off and uh become what the western genre did where like in the 70s like all the parodies started happening um, the same could be said about like Kurosawa's career because his most prominent point in his career was probably uh, the 50s and 60s is when like most of his most well-known uh, pieces of work were coming out. And then in the 70s, he actually was starting to struggle and like kind of lost his like not I believe he lost his like creative edge. Um, I think it was just because he was getting really discouraged with uh like the lack of his work. He didn't think it was holding up to anything he had made before. Um, but then by the time the eighties rolled around, he started like making his epic samurai films again. And then I think he made, or I, in 1990, he made his film dreams, which is like his most personal film, uh, which is amazing. It's a, an amazing piece of art, but it's similar to like the Western genre, how like that died off. And now it's like in a resurgence kind of, um, I started noticing like the Western genre coming back probably around like when Django Unchained came out is like, I started noticing more, uh, Westerns, um, not like so many, but there'd be like these few epic ones. Like again, like, a like, a Django Unchained or a Hateful Eight or even The Revenant is considered a, a Western or even like the, the Coen brothers were making like No Country for Old Men. Um, so I just, yeah, I noticed those similarities with, uh, you know, Kurosawa and 
the Western genre, and it's, you know, I probably am not delivering it as best as I could. Uh, I just find these interesting parallels in his career. Uh, I didn't want to, like, I don't want to, like, sit here and read my whole essay. I don't think that's interesting. I was only picking out, like, little pieces uh, that, you know, stood out to me. Um, but, yeah, that's just, you know, a topic I was thinking about. This is, like, a little, uh, a quick little discussion analysis episode that I wanted to get out. Um, but we will also do current events. But... Uh, I'm curious to know your guys' opinions on the Western genre, Kurosawa. Uh, if you do, uh, I'd love to. Let's we we'll, 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 we we can we can discuss it on the Facebook Instagram page. We also got the email, but let's get into current events. Uh, so the biggest one I think I just saw that kind of was a shock to me. Uh, I noticed that. Uh, Netflix is actually in talks to buy the Hollywood Egyptian Theater from American Cinema Cinematic, I believe is how you pronounce it. Um, that is quite the news. Um, so this would be the first movie theater acquisition that Netflix would get. So not only would they be producing their own content and distributing their own content, but they would also have their own theater to show everything in, which this is Netflix is getting pretty intense with their uh, marketing strategies and how people watch movies. Um, I don't know. That's interesting. The Egyptian theater, too, is I don't know how they would sell that to them because it's pretty the Egyptian theater is pretty historic. It's not as historic as like the Chinese theater, but I think I mentioned this on the episode with I think I mentioned this on the Moonminer episode how I went to that theater and it's like a super classy like old school style theater with like one or two auditoriums I think. Um that's that's interesting. I wonder what Netflix is going to if they're actually going to sell to Netflix and if Netflix actually gets it. I don't know what this is I don't know what that means as far as where cinema's going. Um, I know Spielberg's not going to be happy about it, but you know, he hasn't made a good movie in 20 years. So, uh, I don't know what, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to keep tabs on this story because this was just, this was just announced a couple hours ago. Um, and like I said, it's not even a finalized deal. They're just in talks, um, to buy the theater, but that's honestly, when I was looking through the news, that's like the only big story that came out. We also got George Clooney's Smokehouse Pictures signs first look deal with MGM. A um, couple other like project releases, Issa Rae and Lakeith Stanfield. Uh, they have a romantic drama coming out that's going to be set for a Valentine Day, Valentine's Day release next year. Um, yeah, not really too many big uh too many big no uh news stories honestly uh just some like casting not really big castings but like just castings and tv show announcements um but i did see this article that kevin feige had uh he's said the he's given a little bit of what's going to happen with marvel's next five years essentially they're like five year planned um 
So basically everything after Endgame. Um, so he's already confirmed that Dark Phoenix is going to be the last X-Men movie um, in the current Fox run. So I don't know what that means for New Mutants. I think Are they just going to scrap that movie? Because that movie got announced so long ago. A trailer came out for that movie three years ago, and nothing's happened with it. So I, they might just be scrapping it, honestly. But so Dark Phoenix is the last one. And Kevin Feige was asked if the X-Men would appear anytime soon in the MCU, because now that Disney owns Fox, uh, they have the rights to all those characters. They have the rights to Fantastic Four. Um, But according to Kevin Feige, the X-Men are going to be put on hold for a little bit. And here's what he said. Uh, It'll be it'll. It'll be a while. It's all just beginning. And the five-year plan that we've been working on, we were working on before any of this or any of that was set in relation to the uh, Disney Fox merger. So really, it's much more for us, less about uh, specifics of when and where the X-Men will appear right now and more uh, just the comfort factor and how nice it is that they're home and that they're all back. But it will be a very long time, Um, which doesn't surprise me. I... As far as like how Marvel's been, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, Feige's had this plan for a while, and it doesn't surprise me that the, like the next com- upcoming movies wouldn't have them in it. Um, maybe they they could sprinkle them in like as cameos and or like references because they do own them now. But uh, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that they won't be in for a while. Um, especially since James Gunn got hired back and Guardians has been Guardians three has been pushed back. Um, I don't even know what, what all the movies they've confirmed so far. Um, so they haven't really confirmed anything. I'm looking at this. They all that's confirmed right now is just Spider-Man far from home. Uh, and then like the black widow and the Eternals movie have been rumored. And then, Sequels for Doctor Strange, Black Panther are expected, and then Guardians 3 is going to be coming out later than it was initially scheduled just because of the whole James Gunn uh, situation. But they haven't really made any new announcements past what will happen in Endgame. And honestly, they probably won't until after Endgame or even after Spider-Man. They like to keep everything pretty lock and key over at at the Marvel headquarters and Kevin Feige. Um... But I don't know what that means. It's new, new Mutants, I think that's just scrapped. I think they're just getting rid of it. Um, that's stupid. <laughs> that's so weird. Uh, I don't know. This is... Uh, what's going on? What is going on with, with everything? Uh... I also thought the Black Widow movie was confirmed. I thought I heard they had a director for that, too. I don't know. I don't know what is happening. I don't know what's happening. Uh, (laughs) I think I need some time to process this. Uh, Sorry this was a pretty short episode. I did not expect it to be that short, but just wanted to get another episode out. Uh, Didn't want to read my whole essay out because I that's you know, that's boring. Um... But also not a lot of news really to cover. Um, could talk about the box office, but really it's not a surprise that Shazam's number one, uh, Pet Cemetery's two. It's honestly not that big of a surprise. Um, yeah, 
I, I think that's going to do it for me this week, honestly. Uh, I'll be back this weekend for reviews of Hellboy and Missing Link. I keep forgetting that. Missing Link, and then I will throw in High Life. In that. I will review High Life. Uh, so three movies this weekend. It'll be a pretty good weekend. Um, but yeah, I think that's going to do it this week. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. If you like the podcast, go check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Lighting Up the Marquee. Uh, and then you can also find us and listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Um, if you like the podcast, why don't you go rate us? Go give us a good rate rating. Go give us a good review. Uh, spread the podcast around. We got some. We got. Uh, we got to spread the podcast. Got to get more listeners. Uh, it's always good to get everybody included in on the discussion. Uh, if you have any recommendations or anything you want to, any questions you have for me, anything you want to ask. Uh, you can send it over to our email at lightupthemarquee at gmail.com. But yeah, I think that's going to do it this week for Lighting Up the Marquee. I'm your host, Tim Martin. And, uh, you know, Mile 22 is bad. 